Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to all who are here with us, who have joined us this morning to worship our triune God. We also extend a special welcome to any visitors who are amongst us, and also those who have joined us by live stream. May we are also going to be able to witness the ordination of two deacons and four elders. We're thankful, Lord, for the way that, you, that, that God cares for his church and provides for us in this way. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God be praised and glorified in our worship. We welcome to the pulpit Reverend Anderson from the Sister Church in Rockingham. Before we convince this service, let's sing from Psalm 34, verse 6. Let us rise to worship our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's begin by singing to God's praise from Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord who reigns forever. Praise 
the law of our Lord is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, we do well to remember the context in which they were given. God, having rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt, has brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. And there he speaks to them these ten words of the covenant. They are therefore set in the context of Israel's expected thankfulness for their salvation. And it is also in the same context in which they come to us, having been delivered from our slavery to sin through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to respond to the hearing of God's law with the singing of Psalm 99, the verses 2 and 3. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's.
Let us come before our Lord in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your people on this glorious day that you've given us. A beautiful day not only because of its warmth, but more especially that we can be together to celebrate the warmth of your love for us manifested in Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you, Lord, for you are indeed holy as we have sung, completely set apart from this world, and therefore a God who naturally takes great offense at sin and rebellion. And we confess that we are sinners. But we also confess that you have worked in our hearts by your word and spirit, that we turn from our sins, that we repent. And Lord, we lay them before you again this morning. We humbly ask that you would forgive us only through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered that cruel death on the cross in our stead. Make us, therefore, humble, assure us of forgiveness, but, Lord, grant us that measure of your Spirit whereby more and more we fight against our own sin. And more and more we become conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That others may see also that great transforming work that you are making within us. Lord, therefore, we pray that you would receive our worship this morning, that our songs may come before you and merge together with those of departed saints and also of angels, and that you would speak to us by your holy word, but that word would be worked in our hearts by your spirit such that we would be encouraged, strengthened, and even where necessary, admonished in our walk of faith. We do ask these things in the name of your Son, our High Priest and Mediator, Jesus Christ, who together with you and the Holy Spirit receives all glory and honor forevermore. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning you will find in the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to read from Luke chapter 19. We'll start at verse 11 and read through to verse 27. This is a parable that the Lord Jesus tells to his disciples shortly before his last and final entrance into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, of course, only days away from his ultimate arrest and crucifixion. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minars and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens 
hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your manah has made ten manahs more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your manah has made five manahs. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your manah, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. But I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the manah from him and give it to the one who has the ten manahs. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten manahs. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's sing in response from Psalm 39. We'll sing the first three verses.
Our text this morning is a parable which the Lord Jesus told several days later, quite similar to the one we've read in Luke, but not identical. Matthew 25, from verse 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. For from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Following upon the preaching of God's word, we'll be singing from Psalm 17, verse 6. <clears throat> o 
Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, really only a day away from his arrest, told this parable to his disciples as they were sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. In other words, in terms of the parables of Jesus, this is not one of those veiling parables, but what we might call a see-through one. What do I mean? Well, you may recall that halfway through Jesus' ministry, about a year and a half in, the opposition had grown very strong to his preaching from the side of the Pharisees. And in fact, Pharisees had come up to Galilee where Jesus was preaching, and they had accused him of only being able to do miracles by the power of the devil himself. And it was at that point that Jesus stopped preaching openly in public. When he did speak in public, he veiled his message in parables. Parables, because of our Bible knowledge and the fact that we've grown up in the faith, we find relatively easy to understand. But parables that indeed, for the initial hearers, veiled Jesus' message. This was because Jesus was protecting himself. It was not his time yet. He sent his disciples to preach openly of the kingdom of God in his stead. However, now it is time. And with these parables that we have several days before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is speaking in the kind of parable that he expects his disciples immediately to understand and recognize. When he speaks about a master going away, he of course is speaking about himself. When he speaks about the slaves, or as they're translated here, the servants that are left behind, he's speaking about his disciples. And his disciples are going to have allotted to them various tasks according to their ability. They're expected to use the gifts that God has given them. And so I've entitled the sermon this morning on the basis of this parable, Working with Someone Else's Wealth. We're going to look at the parable, its setting, and also reflect upon its challenge to us. The parable has a setting. As I said, the Lord Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. And as he sits there, the first thing he was doing was being shown by his disciples how gorgeous and beautiful that temple was, and it was. But the, re the reaction of the Lord Jesus was to say that there will not be one stone left upon another. And he proceeds to describe how the city, and particularly the temple, will be destroyed. For these, he says, will be the days of vengeance. Vengeance, of course, for the fact that the city and its leaders will have him crucified. But the Lord Jesus goes on after that 
to speak to his disciples about Judgment Day. And if you have a look at what Jesus says immediately after this parable, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he proceeds to describe how the goats will be separated from the sheep and how there will be a judgment based upon what people have done with the gospel. Therefore, in this parable, when he talks about a man going on a journey for a long time, he's talking about himself. Now, he describes what he does before he leaves. There's three servants or slaves in the parable. And they each get a distribution of the money, the property that belongs to the master. The one gets five talents, the other two, and the other one according to their ability. The talent in those days was a unit of weight. And from there, it was also a unit of money. We ought to understand the kind of man that Jesus is talking about in this parable is obviously extremely wealthy. One talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. In those days, you bought one sheep for one denarius. So that's 6,000 sheep per talent, or, if you're getting five of them, 30,000 sheep, the equivalent of 6,000 oxen. To put it another way, Five talents would be the equivalent of 17 years' wages of a day labourer. You could say he's making the first one, or entrusting the first one, with close to a million dollars. The second one is also then getting a sizable sum, the equivalent of 12,000 sheep. And even the third one, who only gets one talent, is still getting the equivalent of 6,000 sheep or 1,200 oxen. And they're expected to work with that property so that when the master does come back, that business will have gone on and prospered. Whatever business it was, it's not important to the parable. We're told that the man needs to go quickly in this parable. And the Lord Jesus, of course, knows that his arrest it's only a day away. They don't know when he might return. But the Lord Jesus says he's going to be away for a long time. And although he was crucified and buried on the third day, of course, he was raised again and spent some days upon the earth. But ultimately he ascended into heaven where he still is awaiting his return, or we are. Before he leaves, though, he divvies up his wealth. None of those three slaves get a specific task. They're just asked to work with the wealth that they're given. They're expected 
to trade with it, and two of them do. The third one, in fear, buries the money so that at least he won't lose it. Now, when the master does return, the first two slaves are richly rewarded. We are told in the parable that the master says to them, you looked after little. Kind of sarcastic, really, when you calculate how much they were given. You will be given much more. The third one, of course, was driven by fear for the Lord's reputation. He buried it that he might not lose it. But when the master comes back, he's not happy. In fact, verse 26, he calls him, You wicked and slothful servant. Timid, reluctant is another way you could translate that word, slothful. You didn't really want to do anything with what I gave you. You were a bit too scared of what might happen. You might lose it. So you buried it. And having returned, that slave is not only not rewarded, he is punished. And Jesus makes no bones about it in the description of his punishment in verse 30. He uses the words that Jesus has often used to describe hell. He is condemned into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is Jesus telling this parable? That brings us to the second point, the setting. As I've said, his death is imminent. He has been totally rejected by the Jewish leaders of the city, and they have been waiting for the right moment to be able to arrest him and to kill him. That is their intention, and a stated intention. As I said, the Lord Jesus had just come out of the temple. He's climbed the Mount of Olives just opposite it and is seated there with his disciples, talking of the destruction of that city and of the temple. Sad, but it will be a part of God's plan. The disciples, too, have been warned of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion three times, as we know from the Gospels. The disciples have not really appropriated that. They haven't understood completely that Jesus really is going to die. But now Jesus has moved on to talk about the last judgment. Before this parable, he told the one about the ten virgins who were waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, when the bridegroom comes, there are those that aren't ready. And you will need to be ready, says the Lord Jesus. Or she won't be able to come to the wedding feast. And now, now he tells this parable with respect to the last judgment, which he speaks about directly after it, separating the sheep and the goats. Now, you know, one thing that is fairly amazing about that is the fact that when we think of sheep and goats, we kind of think of unbelievers and believers. And when you look closely at what Jesus says about the final judgment, he's talking about 
people that said they were Christian. He's talking about people that expected to get into heaven. The goats don't. And the sheep do. And that's also behind this parable. The master has three servants. Two of them will end up sharing the joy of their master. The third will not. When Jesus tells this parable, he is challenging his disciples to consider themselves the slaves, that's literally the word he uses, the slaves of their master, the Lord Jesus. And he is saying to the disciples, listen, I am going to be gone for a very long time. I'm giving you, as it were, my property. And no, that's not the property that was taken from Jesus by the soldiers at the cross, little as that was. The property that Jesus is leaving his disciples is the revelation of God's kingdom, the gospel of reconciliation, of forgiveness of sins through his blood. It's a gospel combined with gifts that he has given and will give to these disciples as they are sent out into all the world to preach and to bring this gospel. The gifts and the opportunities that God will be giving them for service. These gifts, this gospel, says Jesus, is worth, as it were, millions And with a thankful spirit, they're to set to work with them. The parable is telling the disciples, listen, when I'm gone and you're sent out, you need to be working with this gospel. You cannot be afraid of it. You cannot just go and bury it. And Jesus has also warned them that persecution will be facing them. It will not be an easy road becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ. But that kingdom that they will be testifying to is priceless. And this parable is also saying to them, no one will be asked to do more than they are able They are given each according to his ability. Verse 15. Now the parable sets no specific tasks. The slaves in the parable aren't told what to trade in with that money. Opportunities come and they need to be seized. And so too the apostles are told to go out into the world, but they're not told exactly where. You go to India, uh, you go to Egypt. They're to sort that out themselves, where the Lord leads them, and where the Spirit guides them, because as apostles they will be equipped with the Holy Spirit in a very specific and special way. They will, in the words of the Apostle Paul, be able to show to others the signs of an apostle. And what are the signs of an apostle? The fact that they were able to work the same kinds of miracles as the Lord Jesus himself when he was preaching on earth. 
And they will be guided sometimes by prophecy, sometimes by direct word of the Spirit. But that will not make it any easier for them. Jesus is asking them to reflect on this because soon enough they will be set to work and he will no longer be physically present. Brothers and sisters, what's then the challenge for us this morning as we reflect upon this parable? For such a parable also speaks to us. No, we are not apostles. And we do not have the same task in this life as was directly given to them. The Lord is not asking each and every one of us to give up everything and go into a a foreign country and to preach the gospel. However, we have been called to be God's children. And therefore we have also been called to the service of Jesus Christ, our Master, who purchased us with his own blood, as the New Testament forthrightly states. And we're all given tasks in this life. Sometimes they're tasks given by duly appointed authority. A consistory might appoint after a congregational election certain people to be elders and deacons. No less a calling from the Lord to do that work. Sometimes we're called by circumstance. And God's blessing, parents are called to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. Sometimes we're called by God's providence and we need to have open eyes for the avenues of service that he sets before us. Service in his kingdom. The Lord Jesus said in the parable, he'd be gone, verse 19, a long time. It's been some 2,000 years plus. A drop in the bucket for the Lord. And whether you get to see Christ's return or whether you meet him at your death, the last thing you want is to have to admit that you did nothing with the treasure of this gospel except to bury it within yourself. You know, there's a rather stupid Dutch proverb. When you speak of somebody, you can say, it's close, sit them so deep, In other words, his faith sits so deep in him that you hardly ever see it. It hardly ever comes out. It's stupid because a living faith, by definition, comes out. The consequences, says the Lord Jesus in this parable, for what you do with the gospel are eternal. Nobody wants to face the wrath of the Lamb. Think of that version of the parable that the Lord Jesus spoke only days before the entrance into Jerusalem. It ends with the slaughter of his enemies in front of him. He is speaking of judgment day and of condemnation. 
the gospel requires that we work with it. And a living faith will do nothing else, surely. For if we recognize what this gospel is worth, then it trumps anything else in our lives, whether that be my business, my worth, my connections, my blood family. To be reconciled to God, to have the gift of eternal life, is everything. And the Lord Jesus asks us to work with that. That we might represent him in this world. That in all that we do, yes, also our job, also the mundane tasks of this life, that we give him glory. For the treasures that he promises as a reward by grace are beyond our imagination. The Lord Jesus says to those first two slaves that worked with what he gave them, he says, enter into the joy of your master. What is that joy of our master? I'm led to reflect on what's written in the letter to the Hebrews, the beginning of chapter 12. We read there, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and here it comes, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's written for our encouragement that we too, despite the afflictions, the setbacks, the difficulties that we can and do experience in this life, that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus and on the joy of eternal life on a restored world. For otherwise we will fail if we only focus on the negatives and the sin and the effects of sin in this life. Let us look to the return of our Lord and the renewal of all things. Take encouragement and work for him with this glorious gospel. Amen. We sing from Psalm 17, verse 6.
We come to the ordination of elders and deacons this morning, and you'll find the form for that on page 624 of your book of praise. Congregation, the consistory has now twice published the names of the brothers who were elected and appointed to the office of elder and deacon in this church to learn if anyone had objections to their ordination. Since no one has brought forward anything lawful against their doctrine and life, we shall now in the name of the Lord proceed to their ordination. Let us first hear what Holy Scripture teaches about the offices of elders and deacons. Already in the old dispensation, the people of God enjoyed the leadership and guidance of elders. The Lord told Moses to gather the elders of Israel together in Egypt and to inform them of his promises to deliver them from bondage. While these elders were with Moses in the desert, the Lord told him to select from their midst 70 men to bear the burden of the people with him. Together with Moses, these elders had authority to command the people. At the end of his ministry, Moses gave to all the elders of Israel the law to rule God's people. Once in the promised land, these elders fulfilled their calling in every city. In his unceasing care for his flock, the good shepherd called apostles to be the foundation of his Catholic church. The apostles in turn appointed elders in every church with the cooperation of the congregation. Apostles and elders gathered together to take decisions to which the churches had to submit. Paul charged the overseers to take heed to the flock in which the Holy Spirit had made them guardians. Peter admonished the elders to be shepherds of God's flock that is under their care. In his epistle to the Philippians, the apostle Paul addressed the saints together with the overseers and deacons. In order that these offices might remain, he also gave his fellow workers detailed instructions for selecting brothers to these offices of overseers and deacons. He directed Titus to appoint elders in every town. The New Testament calls these office bearers not only presbyters or elders, but also bishops or overseers, as well as shepherds and guardians. The office of elder is therefore one of authority given by Christ. Elders are to fulfill their duties by reminding God's people of his ordinances and by exercising discipline over the disobedient, by caring for the flock and defending the sheep against the dangers that threaten them. As for their mandate, the task of the elders is, together with the ministers of the word, to have supervision over Christ's church, that every member may conduct himself properly in doctrine and life, according to the gospel. For this purpose, they shall faithfully visit the members of the congregation in their homes to comfort, instruct, and admonish them with the word of God, reproving those who behave improperly. They shall exercise Christian discipline according to the command of Christ against those who show themselves unbelieving and ungodly and refuse to repent. They shall watch that the sacraments are not profaned. Second, Being stewards of the house of God, they are to take care that in the congregation all things are done decently and in good order. 
For this purpose, they formed, together with the minister of the word, the consistory of the church. Together, they shepherd God's flock that is under their care. They must prevent anyone from serving in the church without having been lawfully called. Third, it is their duty to assist the ministers of the word with good counsel and advice. They're also charged with the supervision over the doctrine and conduct of these fellow servants. They shall permit no strange teaching, so that in every respect the congregation is edified by the pure doctrine of the gospel. Therefore they must watch diligently that no wolves enter the sheepfold of the good shepherd. To do their work well, as shepherds of God's flock, the overseers should train themselves in godliness and diligently search the scriptures, which are profitable in every respect, that the men of God may be equipped for every good work. Concerning the ministry of mercy assigned to the deacons, the Lord impressed upon his people Israel the obligation to show mercy to the needy. God repeatedly commanded that the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow might eat within their towns and be filled. In the old dispensation, the needy and suffering were protected and provided for by God's fatherly love. His ordinances taught the covenant people to imitate that love as beloved children. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown us the Father, came into the world to serve. In his mercy he fed the hungry, healed the sick, and showed compassion to the afflicted. And thus he gave an example that his church should do likewise. The ministry of mercy, as assigned to the deacons, proceeds, therefore, from this love of our Savior. After the example of her Lord, the first Christian congregation took care that no one in her midst suffered want. To each was distributed according to need. Also today, the Lord calls on us to show hospitality, generosity, and mercy, so that the weak and needy may share abundantly in the joy of God's people. No one in the congregation of Christ may live uncomforted under the pressure of sickness, loneliness, and poverty. For the sake of this service of love, Christ has given deacons to his church. When the apostles realized that they would have to give up preaching the word of God if they had to devote their full attention to the daily support of the needy, they assigned this duty to seven brothers chosen by the congregation. It is therefore the responsibility of the deacons to see to the good progress of this service of charity in the church. They shall acquaint themselves with existing needs and difficulties and exhort the members of Christ's body to show mercy. They shall gather and manage the offerings and distribute them in Christ's name according to need. They are called to encourage and comfort with the word of God those who receive the gifts of Christ's love. They shall promote with word and deed the unity and fellowship of the Holy Spirit which the congregation enjoys at the table of the Lord. In this way, God's children will increase in love to one another and to all men. I would ask the respective brothers to rise. <clears throat> Beloved brothers, you're about to enter upon your respective offices. We request you to answer the following questions before God and his holy church. First, do you feel in your hearts that God himself 
through his congregation, has called you to these offices. Second, do you believe the Old and New Testament to be the only word of God and the complete doctrine of salvation? Do you reject all doctrines conflicting with it? Third, do you promise to discharge faithfully the duties of your office and to adorn it with a godly life? You elders in the government of the church and you deacons in the ministry of mercy. Do you also promise to submit to the discipline of the church in case you should become delinquent in doctrine or life? Brother Pot, what is your answer? I do. Brother Zontman? I do. Brother Van Dijk? I do. Brother Spiker? I do. Brother De Vries? I do. And Brother Klein? I do. The Almighty God and Father grant you his grace that you may faithfully and fruitfully discharge your offices. Amen. You elders, as good shepherds of Christ's flock and faithful watchmen over the house of God, be diligent in governing the church, in comforting the distressed, and in admonishing the wayward. Take heed that the congregation abide by the pure doctrine and lead a godly life. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but becoming examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You deacons, be faithful and diligent in the gathering of gifts and distribute them cheerfully to those, and to those who need assistance, especially to the widows and orphans. Encourage the congregation to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Support those who are burdened with cares or who are lonely. Give in your ministry of mercy a good example to the congregation of the service to which all are called by Christ Jesus. Be all, with one accord, faithful in your offices. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If you serve well you will gain a good standing for yourselves always. Have great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus and finally enter into the joy of your master. On the other hand, beloved brothers and sisters, receive these men as servants of God. Respect the overseers who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Take care that the deacons have sufficient means to fulfill their ministry. Be good stewards of all that the Lord has entrusted to you. Remember, Christ, your example in serving the church of God. Let us rise and sing also to these new office bearers from Psalm 134, verse 3.
In our prayer this morning, there are also a number of pastoral matters that we will remember. In the first place, we will remember the family of Jamie Brolsma, whose body was um, buried in the bosom of the earth this past week. We will remember Brother John Marnie, who apparently has an imminent move to Fearhaven. We will give thanks for successful knee surgery for Sister Tamson DeVos and successful heart surgery for Brother Martin Pott. We will remember the fact that Brother Michael Verbrugge is able to celebrate his 85th birthday and Brother and Sister Matt and Nikki Kramer are able to celebrate 25 years of marriage. And we will give thanks that Sister Rita Kozaisen has been spared serious injury after yet another fall. And finally, we will pray for Brother John Johnson, who is in hospital again with much pain as a result, I understand, of his cancer. Let us bring these things before the Lord. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, it pleases you for the edification of your church to ordain overseers and deacons besides the ministers of the word. We thank you that you give us men who are endowed with your Holy Spirit. Grant them more and more the gifts they need, wisdom, courage, discretion, and mercy, so that each of them may fulfill his office as it is pleasing to you. Give your grace to both deacons and elders that they may persevere in faithful service without being hindered by trouble and sorrow or by persecution of the world. Grant that this congregation over whom you have set them may submit willingly to the good exhortation of the overseers and esteem them in love because of their work. Give us ardent love for each other. Grant that we may cheerfully provide the deacons with sufficient means so that the needy may be liberally supplied. Lord, we pray that by the faithful service of everyone, the kingdom of your Son may come and your name be glorified. For you have gifted each and every one of us with a knowledge of your glorious gospel. Lord, as you have gifted us and give us opportunities, we pray that we would seek to serve you with our gifts and talents. That we would seek, Lord, to show genuine thankfulness in the practical everyday matters of our lives. We therefore ask that you open our eyes to the avenues for service that by your providence you present us also in the coming week. Help us to boldly represent ourselves as your children. Lord, we do pray, therefore, that as a heavenly Father in Jesus Christ, you would particularly be with those with particular needs among us. We ask, Lord, that you would be with those who are grieving after the burial of Sister Jamie Brolsma, and that you would comfort them with that gospel of life. Lord, we pray, too, that you would be with Brother John Johnson, who is again in hospital, that you would draw near to him, that he may also sense your presence, and that you may bless the hands of the doctors. 
We thank you, Lord, for that same blessing that has been seen in a number of operations on brothers and sisters. We thank you, Lord, for successful heart surgery for Brother Martin Pott and for successful knee surgery on Sister Tamson DeFoss. We ask that you would be with them also in their road of recovery. We thank you, Lord, also for the celebrations that are able to take place, the birthday of Brother Michael Verbrugge, and the wedding anniversary of our brother and sister Matt and Nikki Kramer, we ask that you would be with them, that we may rejoice also in their joy. For these are blessings. And we do not take these blessings for granted, Lord, for we live in a fallen world. But a fallen world in which your gospel has come to give us that joy and to give us that sure expectation of a future with you in your son Jesus Christ. Finally, Lord, we also pray that you would be with Brother John Marnie as he's expected soon to move to Fairhaven and that you would grant him, Lord, all that he needs as the frailties of his age also are with him. We ask, Lord, that you might in your mercy ease them and enable him also in his new environment to be of service to you in your kingdom. Lord, all these things we pray. For we pray as your children, and we pray them in the name of your Son, our living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this point, your gifts and offerings will be gratefully received, and following upon the collection, we'll be singing from Psalm 18, verse 9.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.